Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. Perhaps you could just start off by introducing yourself, Julie. Sure. So um, I'm Julie Considine. I'm Deakin University's Professor of Nursing at Eastern Health, which is one of Victoria's largest health services. completed your ED training at, at Panch at Preston Northcote Community Hospital um, in 94, 95. Yep, yeah, not not long before that, I think, or even around then, Panch was one of the few places that you could actually get specialised post-grad right. nursing training in ED around, around Melbourne. Um, and <laughs> I've got to add in, though, that um, uh, back then that was the place that I applied and had the most horrendous interview and they knocked me back and I went scuttling back to the wards um, at John Faulkner Hospital oh. at the time. Was that with and- um, Sue Dockrell? I can't remember who interviewed oh. me, but they asked me. They asked me a question. You know, when you go to an interview and they ask you a question, and not only aren't you prepared to answer it, but you have no idea what they're talking about. Because <laughs> you know a- what they asked me in my interview at Panch, because um, like I had my wedding rings on, and they said, "Oh, and what does your husband think of you doing further study?" Oh no, no, no way! Hey, Julia, I might just get you to move your little um, uh, mouthpiece away from your mouth a little bit, just down or something. It's just popping and making lots of loud noises. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry to interview. Right. Much better, much better. Sorry to interview the flow of that. Yeah, but oh, Panch, it was <laughs> it was like the panacea for me. I, I, all I could imagine, and being a boy from Epping up around where you currently work now, Panch was so close, and it was, um, and I had friends who were doing their training there as, or doing their postgrad there as well. So I had the best time at Panch. They were the best years of my life. Yeah, it's sad. It's gone. It's long gone now. Oh, I know. Long, long gone. Yeah. And I, I did triage. Um, I was the triage nurse the last evening shift at Panch. Oh and no. The first and the first morning shift at Epping at the Northern. Ha. Huh. Okay, so it was like a bookend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and because we were decommissioning the ED because we were moving all our gear out to Northern, um, for probably the last three weeks at Panch, unless you had a life-threatening illness, the standard triage spiel was, um, we're not taking patients, you need to go to the Austin. And I can't tell you how much joy and delight, the Austin hated us, they hated our guts for about six weeks, but we were just like, off to the Austin you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> like, that'll never happen again, ever. No. No, oh, not at all. God, no more hilarious. typing, no more writing down on a on a piece of paper oh. what your presenting problem was. Oh. Off you go to the Austin. I, I started at the Austin in about 95, 96, so I probably missed that 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 transition period where we didn't have to take all the panch patients. That was hilarious. I remember. Maybe. Yeah, um, I didn't know you, sure. grew, you were from Epping because I grew up in Bundura. Yeah, yeah, oh. I'm an Epping boy, oh, a pinger. Yeah. Well, I won't. I won't say anything about Epping. I loved it, but uh, it was just the ends of the earth. It, it was great because it was a, you know, it's a typical suburb. It was full of kids. There was yeah, kids everywhere. Yeah. But boy, oh boy, was it the ends of the earth. If you were a little bit older or a teenager that wanted to see something else, yeah. <laughs> um, what have I, What have I, What do we want to talk about? Look. Um, I guess uh, talk, talking about postgrad, yeah, yeah. Um, there's been a lot of changes in postgrad over the years, especially I guess since um, Panch and when when I did mine, we did we did all sorts of interesting things in my postgrad. You know, we swapped um, placement with ICU and mm. with CCU, and uh, I think we did eight weeks in ICU in our postgrad and four weeks in CCU. We also did a rotation out with MICA, yep. um, which was awesome. And um, we, at the Austin, we did a switcheroo with uh, people from the Royal Children. So yes. we'd get to do lots of, it, we were a mixed ED and we saw kids, but, um, you know, you don't get the level of, 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 of stuff that you get when you actually work in a PEDS only. Well, we, e- we had an exchange program with the Royal Children. So one of our nurses would go there for a year and one of their nurses would come to us for a year. And the year... I can't remember if it was the year of my postgrad or the year after my postgrad, but the exchange nurse from the kids was Daisy Crowlin. That's how right. we became friends. 
Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, uh, am I going to be able to call her Daisy? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what you do? <laughs> Maybe when I interview, I'll say, hi, Daisy. Maybe you can. <laughs> I don't know that. She'd be too keen yeah, on so, that. So, yeah. And then she, um, I think she had already done her peds post-grad and then she decided to stay and do a mixed and do her post-grad ED at, at Panch. So, yeah, so and then we've been, you know, mates ever since. <laughs> so with, with those sorts of things in mind that things have, have have changed, not many people do get to rotate into other areas. What what, what are your thoughts on that? What do, what do you how do you view the way postgrad is at the moment? Um I mean, look, everything has its pros and cons. Um, you know, I think it's like undergrad. I think the level of educational preparation you get at a university is far greater than what you're going to get in a hospital-based system. Although I had great post-grad training, but, you know, look, it was highly variable in those days. Um, You got a hell of a lot of experiential knowledge, which on some days was really good, but on other days was actually quite traumatic. Um, um, I chose Panch because you only had to go to ICU for two days, and I wasn't a big fan of ICU because as a student nurse I was hospital trained um, and we had to spend four weeks in ICU um, at I won't name the hospital um, and so what happened to me was on my first shift I was a second year student nurse so I was I don't know 19 I got put out in the annex with this brain dead boxer who was waiting to go to theatre for organ harvest and my job was every time his map dropped below something, I had to give 200 mils of, I think it was Hemacel back then. Um, and I just had to sit there with this pink, warm, allegedly dead guy um, and keep his kidneys alive. And then I remember the anaesthetist came and assessed him and said, oh, his family want to come in and say goodbye. And at that point, I just lost it. <laughs> I just lost my stuff and said, you know, this is, and I, I couldn't, I really couldn't get my head around the whole brain death thing. You know, he, and he was not much older than me. He was in his early twenties. Um, and I think that put me off ICU forever. <laughs> so, yeah. So were you there, were you looking after him completely by yourself? Yeah. You, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, he was yeah. brain dead. I couldn't kill him. So like, here, we'll give the second year student nurse a, a ventilated patient, off you go. It's just like, oh, holy crap. Um, and then, you know, an RN had come out every sort of hour or so and just check that everything was all right. And then, um, and if I was worried, I, I'd call someone. And that was my first shift in, in ICU. Yeah. And, and, it, and it, it, it all sounds, you know, very romantic that, oh, you know, this is the way we did it. But gee whiz, no support is just terrifying. Oh, and then he went off to theatre. So clearly, and then the other thing that freaked me out was I was talking to the anaesthetist and they were saying how they don't give anaesthetic because he's brain dead. And I, you know, as a 19-year-old second-year student, I, that, nah, <laughs> it was just a bridge too far. So, yeah, so I, so I really didn't want to go back to ICU yeah, I, yeah. as I was saying, we did an eight-week rotation through ICU and I got told off so much about how messy I was and <laughs> not using the right coloured pen for the right obs when I was writing them in. Um, it, it, it was a great experience and it taught me heaps about, you know, um, complex ventilation and yeah. stuff. But we, we had a lot of support. You know, we had we had people helping us. and um, But it, 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 it certainly wasn't for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, at Panch, you know, I had great, um, you know, there, there were no, no nurse educators in those days. There was the nurse tutor who delivered the course, but she didn't work with you clinically. And so my clinical role models were Marie Gertz, yeah. um, Michael Kiss, um, and, you know, you just attached yourself to these people that you think, I want to be like that that person. Um I was always really neat emergency nurse. So, and Di Krellen and I would have competitions about who could have the neatest charts, you know. Um, so, no, I was never really that messy. But, but yeah, no, we had some terrific role models. And, and the other thing at Panch is we had some amazing women emergency physicians. So, I, I look at people like Wanda Moore and Sheila Bryant, who's at Dandenong now, and um, Penny Roberts. And those women were extraordinary and really went out of their way to – you know, we had this thirst for knowledge um, that we could get from a handful of nurse 
I guess, you know, mentors, but we really attached ourselves often to the docs as well. And, and those women particularly were just so instrumental in, you know, my career. And, and even in the days, you know, when I started my master's and, the you know, there would be a, a brigade of not always, but largely older nurses going, what are you doing that for? Um, mm. And so you just didn't talk about it at work because you just got so much crap from other people but it was it was those women those doctors that would say how's your research going what have you found you know so um yeah so I was really lucky to have good people around me and then you know when I went to Dandenong um again really good female role models you know Meredith Aidy Mary Buchanan um and and great nursing leadership you know Gail and and Dana were formidable women um so, you know, I think we've been, yeah, I've been really lucky with the role modelling that I've had. Yeah, I, I, I can't agree more. I, I was going to ask you, you know, what, what it was about ED that that made you want to stay in ED and, and specialise your care there. For me, it was very much around that kind of supportive environment. Um, it's one of the very few places. I was saying this to um, Claire Skinner from New South Wales uh, the other day that, I think emergency department is the only place I've ever seen a consultant physician get the mop and bucket and clean up some some spillage on the on the floor and yep. those sorts of things. That kind of level of uh, egalitarian sort of management of a of an environment, it, it just sung to me. I just loved it. So yes, we we started ED. Um, so at where I trained at Royal Melbourne. Your first rotation in second year was always to the ED, and I can't remember now. It was eight weeks or twelve weeks? It was a long time. Um, and in those days, so that was back in like '88, um, there was a female director. So Anne Darcy was the medical director of the ED, and she was this older woman with the half moon glasses. And <laughs> and you know, until that point, all the heads of departments that I'd ever met were blokes, older older men. I thought, oh, that's cool. And she used to trot around the emergency department in her white coat, you know. Um, and, but then people like Sal Zolstein, you know, would take me under their wing and teach me stuff. And, um, but in those days, like we got rostered to resus, you know, there were three resus bays and you were resus B, <laughs> um, as a student nurse and there'd be you and one RN for three resus bays, you know, it was pretty hardcore. And then, um, I finished my training and, and in those days you did a staffing year. So I did my staffing year on a, on a medical ward. And then the emergency department was doing this sort of upskill program where they were sending a whole lot of their staff off to do some further education. So that was sort of pre-formal postgrad. And they were looking for relievers to go to the ED. So I was like, pick me, pick me. So I went back to the ED for about four months, I think. And then um, finished my staffing year and just used to go down to ED every week and beg and grovel and say to Marg Nuttall, could you give me a job? And so finally she relented. Um, and so, yeah, so I started working in the ED as an RN. I was 21. Um, and again, we were on the, we called it the veggie roster. So we're on the B roster. So there was me, people, I don't know if you know Rowan Minikin. Um, so there was this, he's now a paramedic, but there was this little group of us that were kind of, and, you know, you'd, in those days, yeah, we used to double bunk. So we'd have two patients in each cubicle. So if you had one to nine, you had 18 patients. You know, it was just crazy. Um, and I, I remember one day, you know, as an, as an RN, I was about my third week and I walked into an early shift and there's, I don't know if you know Mark Nuttall, but she was like the, she was like the admin sister. And then under her were three charge nurses. So so the Royal Melbourne was quite visionary because you had a, char a proper charge nurse on every shift. So there was Kuhn Kwong, who's still working there, um, Sally Shug and Marg Walker. And then Marg Nuttall was like the admin sister. And I walked in and there's Marg Nuttall and she said, okay, Jules, time to do triage. <laughs> and so <laughs> off I went with and spent the day with, with Marg Nuttall learning how to do triage. And it was like, Wow. And I look back on that now, I think, God, that would never happen in a month of Sundays now. But look, as far as I know, I didn't kill anyone. And <laughs> um, and then I got to Panch and um, and at the Royal Melbourne Triage, it was like the flight deck and you had this, remember the old big war boards that you wrote with the Chinagraph yep. pen and then you have to use alcohol to yep, clean yep. it? So you had this huge board 
and nothing happened. Like you were in charge of the ED pretty much. So here I am, you know, three months as an RN <laughs> running, running the ED at Royal Melbourne. <laughs> Going, oh my goodness. And then I, I got to Panch and when I first started at Panch, there was no triage system. The patients would rock up to the clerks and if the clerks were concerned, um, and at Royal Melbourne, it was the traffic light. You either got a green dot, a red dot or a yellow dot, depending on how sick you were. And then I remember this day I, I came to work as a postgrad student and there's this sort of little wooden, like a, a school desk in the waiting room and Marie Gertz says, Jules, we've got to do triage. I went, oh. And she said, and we've got this thing, and it was the national triage scale. Yeah. And um, and she said, oh, you've triaged before. I said, yeah, but we didn't use numbers. We had dots. And yeah. Yeah. So the two of us sat at this little tiny, you know, it was like one foot by two foot wooden desk in the middle of the waiting room at Panch, working our way through implementing the national triage scale. <laughs> so, you know... Oh, anyway. Which went on to be the ATS. Correct. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so then I did my master's degree on, on triage. So I was so fascinated by the whole triage thing. I thought, I'll, I'll look into this. We are going to come back to that. I don't want to move just before sure. we move away from postgrad. Yeah. Um, wh what would you say to an AD nurse now? Like, obviously, you don't have to do postgrad in many of the emergency departments. Some you do. Um, who was sitting on the fence about doing a postgrad? No, I think if, if you want to be a specialist nurse, you need a specialist level of education. Um, and I think to not do that, you're short selling your patients and their families, you know. And, and we know the better educated nurses are, the better patients do and you know we're right up the pointy end of the the system and you know not not every day is is cpr and ventilation but you know the even the little old lady with a hip fracture you know how you care for her as an ed nurse will make or break her outcomes post-op so, so even I, yeah I, I even think, how sorry go okay on. Even how you you treat the, the the what seemingly could be the most benign thing, um, doing a postgrad really gives you the insight into you know what the outcomes might be for that patient or what it's going to mean to their day yeah. if we if we if we haven't got that sort of stuff. And you know, for a lot of my postgrad students, when I was a CNE. Um, it was about that year after postgrad actually, mm. where you really consolidated all that stuff. But, but, you know, I think the level of anatomy, physiology, pathophysiology, the, the undergrad, you know, it's it's fine, don't get me wrong, but it's not enough for a specialist environment like a critical care or ED environment. So, um, and, and I think nurses who just think, oh, I'll just sail through and, and not educate myself, I, I don't have a lot of time in our profession for those kind of nurses because I... I think we owe it to our patients to be as as educated as we can be. When I when I first met you, I think it was about eighteen years ago, and you were the, one of the CNEs at Dandenong ED in Victoria. Yeah, at the at the time. You were actually the first nurse that I'd physically met who was doing a PhD. Um, from memory, your work was around looking at nurses' decision-making about how they deliver oxygen uh, therapy right. to patients. Yeah. Um, and you asked me to complete one of your surveys <laughs> about what decision-making process I used when putting oxygen on a patient. And to be honest, at the time, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't sure. And I felt like I was being tested as well. Sorry. There was a, no, no, because in hindsight, it was actually – a really helpful thing for my practice um, because it, it, so much as to say, it made me think then every time I did something or every time I initiated a treatment or, uh, you know, managed a patient in a certain way, it made me think hard about why I was doing that. Because up until then, I was just sticking oxygen on and they look a bit short of breath, so I'll, I'll do this. And, oh, they're very short of breath. I'll put a non-breather on that. And up until then, where do you see, um, sorry, um, 
Where do you see that we have some work to do on the decision-making processes in our care nowadays? I think that the challenge for emergency nurses now is that, um, you know, when I first started in ED, the the patients weren't there for very long, you know. Um, The admitting officer was an emergency physician and so he'd ring the wards and go, right, you're taking this patient, we'll be up in... 20 minutes, you know, um, then that the, and in those days, you know, the ED, it functioned, it was busy, but it functioned reasonably well. And then the double bunking business started in the Kennett years when they just made massive cuts to healthcare across the board. And so that was the first time that we didn't have beds available to send people to. It's like, what? Um, And, you know, we had people in the ED for two days, three days, um, and it was pretty terrible. And that that continued while I worked at Panch. Um, And then, you know, there was always the tension between emergency department function and elective surgical waiting lists. And so, you know, we were we were anarchists at Panch. You know, we'd have patients and families who'd be so angry because their mum's been in the ED for two days. And so we'd give them the CEO's phone number and go, here, ring this guy. (laughs) (laughs) So we we were really naughty. We were terrible. Um, Probably wouldn't do that now. Um, But we we had this sort of, you know, bunker mentality. It was like the ED was just at war every day you went to work. Um, And I still think we managed to deliver pretty good care. And and I think, you know, certainly at Panch and, and at Dandenong, you know, I worked in both those EDs before the state trauma system ever was a thing. So, you know, pant on a Saturday night, we would get stabbings and shootings from the pub across the corner. You know, we dealt with heaps of, and, and it was, you know, it was the drug capital of Melbourne in those days. So we would deal with a lot of blunt trauma, penetrating trauma. You know, Danny Nong used to call it, you know, being in the triangle of death because you had those three major freeways, you know, the South Gippie, the Monash, and the princess. And so mm. we would do high impact um, road trauma that would come by chopper. You know, in those days we had the helipad. Um, so we did all that stuff before, you know, there were trauma centers. Um, and, and I get that trauma centers do improve outcomes. And I'm not suggesting for a minute that we should go back to that, but God, it was good fun. Um, but we were, we, I think we were really forced to to make decisions and and wear them and and I think you know that the level of decision making support was quite variable. Um, you know when I when I was at Dandenong, I'd finished my master's degree. I was only four years out of my postgrad. I was twenty seven when I became a nurse educator, so I was pretty young. Um, and I think sometimes you just got to have a bit of courage of your conviction and go right. This is the decision I'm going to make. Um, and I always thought at Danny Nong, it doesn't matter, even if I make a bad decision, you know, those nursing leaders would back you. You know, I knew Dana would back me no matter what. <laughs> but I think also you've got to be prepared to reevaluate your decisions and go, oh, actually, maybe this is not the right, you know, road to be going down and we need to backtrack a bit. Um, but I think coming back to what you were saying before, I think the, the collegiate decision making that happens in an ED, particularly when it's stressful and you've got a critically ill or injured patient, um, I think that's what gets you through. And I also think in those EDs that as a nurse, my input into those decisions was on an equal footing to the most senior emergency physician, you know. So so I think that level of, of respect and collegiality, I think, serves our patients really well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I was thinking um, about talking a little bit about your relationship with Cena as well. Mm-hmm. You're a fellow of the college and indeed you were awarded the College of Emergency Nursing Australasia Julie Fanukan OAM Medal for Leadership. Yep. And um, I know Cena has had they've had a number of challenges over the years with uh, maintaining sustainability with funds and membership. Um, can you tell us your thoughts a little uh, a bit about the more recent evolution of the college and the direction it's heading in now? Yeah, um, I think, look, I'm really proud to be a founding fellow. I'm really proud of my 
Julie Finucane Medal. Um, and I think to be recognised, <coughs> excuse me, by your peers, um, you know, in 2006, I won Emergency Nurse of the Year. Um, so though that level of accolade to me is even better than having a PhD. You know, it's when you when your peers think you're going all right, you know, it's 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 nice. I think, you know, the college has, it's really grown up, I think, in the last couple of years and we've moved, you know, it, the history of the college is, is interesting and it's different for each state. So each state has its own sort of historical bias, I guess. But I think, you know, we've had really strong leadership. Um, I think the college is starting to gain traction at sort of national policy levels, government, you know, people are coming and asking us what we think because it's frustrated me for a long time that the only voice in emergency care is ASIM and and whilst they are very well placed to talk about emergency medicine, they actually don't know anything about triage or emergency nursing yet they seem to have, you know, the need to speak on our behalf and that really annoys me. <laughs> so I, I think it's it's great to see the college um, putting itself out there and and I think having a, having a presence. I think we've got a little way to go. I think there's a lot of political issues that I think we should weigh in on that we maybe don't. Um, but yeah, look, you know, we're, we're getting there and I think um, you know, people forget that Cena's only been Cena for a relatively short period of of time. So even though I've been, you know, involved in Ena Vic and then ACCCN and then Cena, so I feel like I've been in the game forever because I'm old. But um but you know, but people forget Cena is, you know, a relatively new new entity. Um and you know, and it, it had to find its feet and I think it had to you know, when Cena formed um you know, people were very parochial and wanted to make sure that their jurisdiction's interests were represented and, you know, we couldn't have too many people from one state because the little states would get, you know, trodden on. And But I think we've we've grown up past that now and I think, yeah, I think it's it's really time for Cena to, to move up another level and I think we're on track to do that. Yep. Yeah, I've been amazed with the leadership in Cena in the last in the last few years. Um, I've been a member of, of Cena for, for I actually can't remember when I, I guess it was when I first um, started working in ED. Um, and it always felt year after year, okay, I, I, I get that I need to be, and I wasn't involved, you know, I'm ashamed to say I haven't I haven't been as involved as I should have been over the years. Um, but in the last seven to five to seven years, the value that you get from the college as just a, a, a member has has blown me away. Another another one. What what would you say to a nurse who's even half considering Cena? I mean, you know, we so need when, to. Yeah. <laughs> when I started at Royal Melbourne, yeah. Mark Nuttall sat me down and she handed me a form and she said, Jules. <laughs> She was quite gruff, but she called me Jules, so I knew she liked me. She goes, yeah, Jules, yeah. you need to be in this. And it was Ina Vic. And I think in those days, about 60 bucks or something. And I thought, oh, all right. And that was actually quite a bit of money on a, on a sort of grade two salary and you've got a mortgage and interest rates 18%, and, you know. Um, and I thought, oh, okay. So I joined it. And then they, they used to run sort of education evenings a few times a year. So I'd pop myself off to those and... And, you know, honestly, I felt like the kindergarten kid because there were all these hardcore emergency nurses that seemed to be a lot older than me and there'd be me in the corner going, oh, this is all very interesting and exciting. They were probably um, about 30. They probably were. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then, um, you know, things evolved and um, and I can't even remember how it happened, but Di Crellin and I ended up being co-opted into, into Ina Vick's branch management committee um, and ended up co-sharing the secretary's job for a few years. Um, and then, you know, Ina became Cena. But I, I think for nurses that are, are not sure, I think, you know, you, there's strength in a professional association. And I think one of the, one of the really big strengths in emergency nursing now is that we've got a, a really critical mass now of 
doctorally prepared emergency nurses in all sorts of different roles. Um, and, you know, intensive care and ACCCN have had that for a long time. So I think we're just, we're on the cusp now of having that, that critical mass of, of nurses who are, you know, really well educated, who, who've got vision, who can mount a reasonable argument and stand by it. And so I think, you know, part of the college's evolution was we had to sort of wait for that to happen. And I'm, I'm not saying that people without PhDs are not contributing to the college at all. But I think as a profession, that's sort of a, a hallmark of you growing up is having that, that academic presence where you can um, grow your own knowledge base, grow your own evidence, weigh into issues around policy, education, practice. Um, and, and I think also like, you know, nurses, I think for Cena, you know, we're much more sure of who we are and what our role is in healthcare now than maybe we were sort of back in the Ena Vic days. And and I guess when you think about it, emergency care is still a pretty new um, area of expertise. Even even ED physician training is it's not not that old um, compared to surgery and endocrinology yeah. and all of these different specialties. So, so it's the, not... the Panch ED course started in 1974. ASIM wasn't formed until 1979. Yeah. I think the other thing too is that we've got a critical mass of nurses in really high-end clinical roles too. You know, we've got nurse practitioners now that that just wasn't an option when you and I were doing our postgrads, you know, there wasn't even that career path available. So, so we also have this critical mass of, I think we're up to, you know, 150 odd emergency nurse practitioners around the country. So, you know, again, you know, we have this critical mass of people in quite senior positions, which is good. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, that uh, the voice becomes a bit more powerful and a bit more credible, um, and with doctorally prepared um, emergency nurses. I think you've supervised. I don't know how many people you said. I was looking here. It's got eleven PhDs, fifteen masters, and seventeen honors students. Um, the 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 research preparation and that that sort of research pathway for emergency nurses. How do you view its importance to 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 the to the community? I mean, look, not you know I have this mantra that not every nurse needs to do research, but every nurse must use research. And if you're not practicing evidence-based emergency care, then you know, quite frankly, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> um, um, so, you know, look, research, doing research is not for everyone and that's okay. Um, but for those nurses that want to do research, I think there is, there's pathways available and, you know, you and I both know that. But I think the greatest, um, not regret, but I just, I wish we could combine research and clinical careers to the same degree that our physician colleagues can. And my, my biggest regret, not regret, but it was walking away from clinical was a really tough decision for me, but I had to do it because I can't work 80 hours a week. But I think we, we still don't have those those career paths. And, 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 you know, as soon as you get an academic position, you know, they kind of beat clinical out of you um, because it doesn't count towards your academic KPIs and it doesn't count towards the university performance. And, and I think that's a bit of a blight on and it's not just emergency nursing that happens to all nurse scholars so mm. i think it's a bit of a blight on our profession yeah the doctors seem to have it really wired it's built into their portfolio to teach and to be clinical and also to some degree to to do some research um, and i think we've it feels like we've got a, a bit of a ways to go i know when i became a cna i took over your old job at one stage um when i became a cna at dandy ed i really wrestled mm. with um the reduction in my clinical match fitness even yeah. and then when I went to work for Monash University at the at nursing and midwifery um, I just struggled for the first couple of years with the idea of not being able to put my hands on patients um, look I'm uh, I'm fine with it now I play a different part in the machine I've got mm. a different a, a different role to play um, but yeah that's something that people really have to we need to work on how we can bring clinical 
education sort of portfolios and, and research together. And I mean, give- I, was, I was lucky at Dandenong because I, I was doing my PhD, but I did a lot of just investigator-driven research at Dandenong and I got a pretty free reign. You know, Dana was of the view that as long as I got my other stuff done, she didn't really care what I did or how I did it. Just, you know, as long as the as long as the needs of the department were met. Um, and so we did a lot of evaluation stuff in those days. So we, oh, I remember evaluating, um, you know, care of old people with hip fractures against the, these new guidelines that had come out. Um, the first iteration of the acute coronary syndrome guidelines had been released. And so Kerry Hood used that for her master's degree. Um, and so we were quite in that space of aut- sort of glorified auditing, I suppose, but we were we were constantly evaluating different elements of practice against these new guidelines that were coming out left, right and centre. Um, you know, we did a lot of stuff around evaluating, and look, it wasn't particularly high level, but, you know, evaluating education stuff like the career development year. Um, you know, that was that was just something that was so out there when we did it. People were just like, what? And, <laughs> and, for, those, and for those who are listening, the career development year or CDY kind of evolved into now a pretty nationally recognised yeah. transition to specialty practice programs. So back in those days, we struggled, like we were, I don't know, 20, 30 EFT down in the emergency department. Um, so, you know, really, if you're a nurse and you're upright and breathing, you could almost you'd get a job. Um, and we, we struggled to understand why we forced nurse. And for me, being hospital trained, I was very clear I wanted to be an emergency nurse from second year. And so Kerry and I would have these deep philosophical conversations about why do we force nurses who want to be something else to go and work in medical surgical for a year? Um, And then people say, oh, but they need to consolidate. Well, I don't know what you're going to learn on a medical surgical ward that you can't learn in an emergency department. Um, And so we, we started that wanting to have a graduate nurse program in ED. And that got kiboshed pretty rapidly by the powers to be in nursing education at the time. And I guess the other thing in those days, you know, the educators, we were employed by the unit. There was no nursing education. Well, there was a nursing education department, but that was for the graduate nurses. Um, And so I was answerable to the unit. I wasn't answerable to anyone else. And so then... um, so then we teamed up with, in those days, was Greg Fletcher from ICU and a, a woman called, called Georgie Kelly from Coronary Care. And so we ran the first CDY, um, was across all three specialties. And it was an abject failure. Like it was a, just a dismal failure because, you know, the coronary care students were sitting there listening about, you know, croup and bronchiolitis and they didn't give a toss. And all the ICU nurses wanted was how do I ventilate this patient? And the ED nurses weren't up to ventilation. So anyway, it didn't, it didn't really work. And then the second year we broke out and just ran it as an ED initiative. And it was really to get bums on seats. It was to actually get um, nurses on the roster who could function up to a level of monitored cubicles and pretty simple chest pain kind of stuff. Um, and it was never intended to be a precursor to postgrad. It was it was purely about recruitment um, when we did it. And then it's kind of morphed into this, you know, you have to do a TSP before you can do your postgrad. So I still don't really subscribe to that. Um, and then, you know, other people started using TSPs as a, as a substitute for postgrad, which really upset me because it's not what it is at all. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of become a bit of a runaway train, I think. But, um, you know, I think Julia Morfitt's PhD was, is, you know, the first at scale study of these programs. And, you know, that's highlighted quite an, uh, some interesting findings. And, um, and, you know, back in those days, we were running 12 study days a year. Like, God, the, the expense, the resources, the, you know, we probably overshot it a bit. But anyway... You don't know till you do it, do you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm going to ask you an unsignaled, unnotified question, but I've been asking quite a few of the people we're interviewing from the emergency care world. Um, if you were to wake up tomorrow and the state of emergency care was 
perfect. What would that look like? Oh wow! Um, all right, there'd be there'd be yeah, there'd be a few things. So I think the first thing would be that um, people could get admitted to hospital some other way than going via the emergency department. Um, I think the second thing would be that there would be that emergency departments could function how they were designed to function. So you you know you don't need an endpoint diagnosis at the end of your emergency care episode. It's okay to go to a ward with abdominal pain, FI or chest pain, FI or whatever. Um, I think you'd be able to triage patients who clearly need specialist care to that care. So I'm thinking of our mental health patients, our drug and alcohol patients, you know, even an old lady with a hip fracture, you know, they don't need to be in the emergency department. We know where they need to go. They need to go to the orthopedic ward where the nurses are specialised in the care of those patients. So I think for me, you know, one of the the biggest issues with access block and ED overcrowding and prolonged length of stay is that those patients are denied the specialist nursing care that they deserve. And you know, while I'm the first person to advocate for emergency nurses, you know, if you've got a hip fracture, you don't want to be with us. You want to be with the orthopedic nurses. You know, if you've got COPD, you want to be with the respiratory nurses. Um, if you've got cancer, you want to be with the oncology nurses. So, you know, we have our part to play. Um, and certainly if you're a mental health patient, God knows you want to be with the mental health nurses. So I, I think, you know, getting people to the right care faster than what we're currently achieving, I think would be perfect in the ED. Um, and, and I think the flow on effect from that, I would hope would be that, you know, ED clinicians would have more reasonable workloads so that they would be less traumatized by going to work. Um, you know, if I hear about one more yoga session, I'll bloody commit hurry curry. It's like, no, just give me a reasonable workload in a hospital that works. You know, don't, and I think, you know, we we talk about all of this building resilience and I agree with that to a point, but it's a bit of a double-edged sword. And I think by saying to all these really experienced, really good emergency care clinicians, you're not resilient enough is quite frankly insulting. Oh, beyond, you know, the, beyond you know, insulting, yeah. The, the, the system's broken and we're trying to navigate it. Don't tell us to be more resilient. Sort your system out. So... So I think, um, you know, I think just fixing the flow problems and, and I think, you know, we've been doing a whole lot of work recently around unplanned um, hospital readmissions. So, you know, you can leave hospital and within 36 hours, you know, something's gone wrong for you at home and you need to come back in. But the only way you can do that is to start all over again and come through the emergency department. There's, there's got to be a better way. It's crazy um, making, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, look, I remember at Patch, I'm going to sound old, but you know, we had GPs that had admitting rights to the hospital. You know, patients would come and they would get admitted and they would never even set foot in the emergency department. Um, and for many of those patients, it was very obvious they needed to be in hospital and it worked well. And, I, you know, I think we've got to really look at how people get into the system and, you know, there's got to be more front doors to a hospital than the triage desk. And the poor old um, uh, GP in the community just trying to get through that massive wall, that monolithic wall of a healthcare network, mm. they just don't have the access. You know, it's, sometimes it's about who they know, yeah. never mind. Yeah, so that's... Yeah, uh, yeah. so I, I think, you know, that would be good. I think the way we design our EDs, you know, it's it's better, but it's still not perfect. Um we really haven't designed our EDs for the aging population who are our core business. Um, we don't try and make EDs comfortable for families, um, and we should. So, yeah, I think there's some design features in our emergency departments, you know, that could go a long way to improving patient and care experience. Absolutely. Mm. We. I just, I just thought, and I'm sorry about such a, an unsignal question. I know that's a, a huge, uh, broad-reaching question for you. There's something I just want to, just before we finish up, I just want you to tell us a little bit. I didn't know that you'd been running masterclasses for the last seven-odd years in emergency 
uh, nursing in Helsinki. Mm-hmm. Um, no, since 2006. Mm. Oh, my God. Um, I, I can't think of anything like that in Australasia. Um, can you tell, tell us about what these are? Yeah, so, so <laughs> in other countries in the world, um, emergency care is, is not a specialty. So, so in Finland, um, until recently, there were no emergency physicians. So the emergency departments are staffed by special, like the old days, you know, you could have a dermatologist in the emergency department, you know. Um, uh, and they, their emergency departments historically were set up by diagnostic area. So there's an orthopedic area, there's a medical area, there's a, I don't know, neuro area. So there's no triage. You're not you're not putting the geography is not about urgency. It's about what is wrong with you. Um, and so because there's not been emergency medicine, there is no emergency nursing. There's no specialist training for their nurses. There's no post grad. So nothing of the equivalent of our grad search. Um, it, it's sort of just on the job experiential learning. Um, so in the last few years. Um, there's been a real move to have emergency medicine as a specialty and and they're kind of grandfathering people into emergency medicine, mostly from sort of anaesthetics. So it's a bit like what happened in Australia when ASIM first started. Um, few surgeons, few physicians, but mostly anaesthetics. And my, my colleague, um, Marit Castron, so she was a nurse, became a doctor, was a surgeon, then became an anaesthetist whilst having four children and, you know. Uh, of course. Um, and so uh-huh. I work with Marit at Ilcor. She's on the Basic Life Support Task Force. And for many years, we were the only two women on that task force. And and we would talk about, you know, emergency nursing and being a woman. And 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 so she's really been the driver. Um, she went and did emergency medicine training in Sweden, came back to Finland. So she was one of two emergency physicians and has now set up a college and a training program. Um, but she contacted me and she's smart enough to know that if she doesn't set up emergency nursing in parallel to emergency medicine, it's all going to fall over. And so that's how I got involved. So so we've been, myself and my colleague Judy Curry from Deakin have been running these um, masterclasses. So they go for a week, so five-day masterclass um, in, in emergency nursing. And we do obviously evidence-based clinical stuff, but we also do stuff around um, clinical decision making, decision bias, um, patient and family engagement, um, governance, quality, quality and safety, um, and it's been great. Um, so I think all up we've we've educated I don't know about 130 of their nurses. Um, Australian yeah. nurses showing the world how it's done. I think what Australian nurses don't actually get is that our postgraduate specialist nurses, whether it be ICU, ED, um, periop, are amongst the most well-educated in the world. Um, you know, there, there are midwives that would be on par, you know, midwifery's had a very strong presence, particularly in the UK with a lot of home birthing and New Zealand and stuff. But, but in terms of specialist critical care practice, um, you know, in, in Finland, if they need to intubate a patient, the anaesthetist comes down to the ED and sets the ventilator. And they nearly had a stroke when I said, oh, no, I, I, we do that. Yeah. And they're like, well, what if you need to change something? I go, change it. And then I tell, I just, and then I tell the doctor, you know. Um, so, you know, the gases come back, their PO2 is 80, I'll tweak my ventilator. And they're just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, in the States, you have respiratory therapists that do that stuff. You have phlebotomists that come and do your bloods. And so there's very few other countries in the world where nurses provide the level of complete care for critically ill patients that we do in Australia. Um, and there's very few countries in the world where the nurses are educated to the level of our certainly grad cert, but also grad dip. And then, you know, we have masters prepared nurses all over the world, but you know, if, if you look at the UK and their, you know, minor majors systems in the ED, you know, in the UK, a lot of their their training is, is still largely vocational. It's it's a bit university trained, but I think um, the healthcare system, 
until COVID-19, has really taken for granted the level of specialist nurse in this country. Um, you know, ICU nurses are now the, the, the new heroes of the day, and rightly so. Whether they'll maintain that level of respect and and whether they'll make any real efforts to understand what specialist nurses actually do, I guess remains to be seen, but um, I'd be I'd be hopeful, but... But, you know, if, if you're in ICU, you are completely dependent on that nurse to live, mm-hmm. you know, to not get a pressure sore, to not have a GI bleed, to not get musculoskeletal complications, to not be in pain, to not get delirium, to make sure your inotropes are at the right level. Yeah, All of that, that, that's pretty high end when you think about it. Damn straight. Yeah. Hey. Hey, Julie, that, that's probably an amazing way to finish off. Um, thank you so much for joining us on This Emergency Life. Um, Pleasure. And hopefully we can get to get you back in the future. Yep, love to. Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and The Millions. Um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. Mm-hmm.